The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Radio Tony with Tony Lontis. Author of Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl discovering a woman of strength and beauty. Available now on Amazon.com and in all good bookstores. Radio Tony. Your safe space for tough conversations, exposing secrets and talking about trauma and recovery. Radio Tony. Building resilience, talking trauma. Radio Tony. Live from the Gold Coast, Australia. Radio Tony. On W4WN, a platform for the unheard. Good morning, Australia, and good evening, America. This is Tony Lontis, and you're listening to Radio Tony. And this is my last show on W4WN, and it's kind of bittersweet. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to thank each and every one of you who've taken the time to listen to Radio Tony over the last almost two years, to be exact. I'm actually not going anywhere. Radio Tony is not going anywhere, but we are predominantly now on a platform out of San Francisco. And just a reminder, guys, please let me know that you're still okay out there in radio land. You can connect with me on my website, radiotony.com, on the Facebook page, um, which I've put the links up in the chat box on Instagram. LinkedIn, YouTube, and of course, you can find all of my live shows on Binge Networks TV, and the link for that is also up there. Um, As I go through the course of this year, I will slowly be adding all of the podcasts for the last two years onto Binge TV as a podcast series. So I'm not actually going anywhere, just changing where you will find me. But just a reminder, you can still reach me on the website, radiotony.com. Connect with me there. Say hello. Let me know you're okay. So on this last show, I'm actually really privileged to have worked with Rebel. Rebel has been my sound technician from the beginning and even though we've never met, I actually feel like she's one of my friends. We spend pre-show chats and post-show chats together. She has managed the production of all of my shows and truly, even though we've never met, I love her dearly. She's an amazing gal and I wish her all the best and this is my last show. I just want to particularly thank Rebel for all her amazing help, all her support and all her love over the last two years. Now, the last show I'm going to share with another friend of mine, Denny Meek. And before we get on, I just want to remind you that Denny and I talk about some tough tough, tough subjects. And today, I want to remind you that if these what we discussed today triggers anything in you, please reach out and seek some help. But it's an important conversation to have because today we're going to talk about grief. Now, Danny was um, Danny was 22 with a psychology degree and about to step into the life that she planned. But fate had something else in line for her. And it wasn't towards a brilliant career in a professional world and a happy home life. But it set about uh, giving her the huge, tough experiences that we wish we never had to walk through. So she walked through domestic violence, single parenting, her daughter's anorexia, the loss of an infant son, the suicide of her oldest son and the suicide of her daughter. And she spent 
15 years trying to cope with all of these things that had come into her life. She wrote a book called Still Standing, A Mother's Raw Journey from the Shadows of Loss to the Dawning of Hope. It's a wonderful memoir with intense stories from a heavy duty life and it covers all of those tough subjects from domestic violence to infant loss, single parenting, mental illness, teen suicide, multiple child losses and an unsurprising dark night of the soul and that's in reference to grief and so today we want to talk about grief, what it means and what the things you are need to know about grief and grieving. And Denny is somewhat of an unintentioned expert in this area. Um, it's definitely not been her choice to walk this life, but she has. And what she has to say will empower and encourage any of you suffering from grief at the moment. Good evening, Denny. Hello, Tony. What a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> I want to try and bring um, not just the shade but the light to this subject. I don't think that we talk enough about grief and certainly from your precious perspective, there's been a lot. Um, I thought that we'd start today's program talking about how uh, generations of humanity have seen grief. And so back hundreds of years ago, we treated grief differently, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. I'm not um, familiar with how it was several centuries ago, but I know that at the turn of this century, at the turn of last century, the beginning of the 1900s, uh, widows were given four years of formal mourning and they were expected to dress in black. So it was socially recognised and that makes a big difference to have social recognition because uh, it gives you room, you know, um, socially. I think now it's very different. We, uh, we have a different mindset towards life in general I think we value um, modernity and efficiency and getting life done quickly. Our days yeah. seem to have condensed down into less than 24 hours and um, we glorify busy. <clears throat> so to spend time and give time to the things that don't want to be rushed, that want our reflection to find meaning, um, there is not a lot of room given in the outside world. Um, Tony, will I just go on um, with a, a couple of things? I was just going to comment on the difference a couple of hundred years seems to make mm. in terms of um, I'm just thinking about the freedom and the latitude given to the mourners the turn of the century, the start of the 1900s, like four years from our modern perspective seems like an awful amount of time. However, what a gift to give mm. to people to allow them that time to grieve properly. Yeah, I think so too. And I think even by today's standards, I think four years would be a lovely amount of time just to have it recognised yep. that you're not being pressured to get on yeah. with it and all those platitudes we offer to the bereaved, you know. Um, because I, modern um, modern companies actually only give you a number of days mm -hmm. in which to grieve and attend a funeral. And if you compare that to what we used to have, that's a mm -hmm. huge difference. And, yeah. and that has its own impacts, doesn't it, Denny? Very much so, yeah. We can't be uninfluenced by our culture we are influenced we ingest our culture in ways that we don't recognize i believe shadow work is never done so we just keep finding yeah. different ways in which we've been influenced by our outside world yeah so it does have an impact there was a sociologist around in the 70s named margaret mead mm -hmm. 
Yes. And she said, when a person is born, we rejoice. And when they're married, we jubilate. But when they die, we try to pretend that nothing happened. (laughs) And so I don't think that we are improving in our handling of death. There are pockets in the world, of course, that are for whom it's their specialty and they work hard at it. Yes. But as a general society, it is still a taboo subject. Um, For those aged between 25 and 34, it is the top dinner time taboo subject. You you don't talk about death. Really? Mm. Mm. So that makes it really hard. interesting. Mm. Mm. It, it produces, does. It produces platitudes of oh well this and oh well that. If the person is older, oh well they had a good innings. That's what we say. Yes. Or, yes. Um, you know, I was given a lot of at least when my baby son died, at least he yeah. didn't have to st- stay and live a life of pain. A life of pain was not ahead for him, you know, but it is such an uncomfortable subject that people need to say these things and hurry along the conversation because it's hard to sit. And it's uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. It's very hard to sit in the space of death and hold space for it. Yeah. Mm. Denny, there's um, a series for humans to grieve properly and process grief, death and dying properly. There's a series of uh, that you're supposed to go through. Mm. Was it something that you were conscious of when you lost your infant son? No. <laughs> The yeah. textbook goes out the window totally. It's just yeah. not. It's a different world. You're in a totally different world. I was anyway. Um, yeah. And you, well, I needed to develop a relationship with myself to the subject of pain inside myself. And that's been mm-hmm. a lifetime of work. So I find that when I'm around people who um, have a different relationship to pain inside themselves, It can be difficult, it can be awkward for them to discuss anything of my life. Mm. Yeah. It's not a judgment on them, it's just, um, no. where do I fit comfortably in this world? Yeah. Um, Those stages that you refer to, Tony, I find it very interesting because my father was, my father who turned 92 yesterday. (laughs) Yes. He was a child. Happy birthday, Dad. Happy birthday, Dad. (laughs) He was a child in the Depression, and he Mm. said that back then death was not talked about and that it was hidden. At all? No, no, and that it was hidden from children. His parents died during the Second World War, and Mm -hmm. it was not talked about. They were ushered out of the house, you know, and children didn't go to funerals. <clears throat> so it, he said it just wasn't talked about, and um, Do you so, know? I, so I don't Go think ahead. there were very. Uh, I don't think that there were very helpful models of grieving in that period, at the beginning of the 1900s through to say the mm-hmm. 1950s when that formal mourning period was reduced down to six months. I don't think that there were very. I get the impression they were not very helpful models of grieving and I think that after the two world wars so much loss had to be processed worldwide on an unparalleled Mm -hmm. scale and things changed so rapidly in that 50 years that a new era on the subject of death and grief had to emerge and I think that this was the era from which Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book was grabbed with both hands. Yes, yes. So she brought out her book called On Death and Dying in 1969. And within a very oh, short... Oh, wow, really? Yeah, and in a very short period of time, it was on coffee tables and in waiting rooms yes. all around the world mm. because mm. we were craving uh, a grasp on grief. And I still hear her stages of grief referred to now. So yes, it, yes. it stuck. She was an edge cutter and she said in her final book before she died in 2005, her final book she wrote with David Kessler called On Grief and Grieving, which I think is a good book, mm-hmm. 
She said mm-hmm. she didn't ever mean for her stages to be taken sequentially. And yes. she, she meant that she could go back many, many times and revisit any of those stages in any order. Um, but it was taken literally because we needed something simple to yes. hold on to and to, by which to understand grief. So she suggested the stages of grief as denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. Mm. And mm. in her last book, she said she often wondered if she should have added a sixth stage of anger at God, <laughs> which I loved because I said yeah. that. <laughs> I was just going to say, did um, so when we're talking about your grief, there was different grief at different times. Mm. So I'm wondering if for each of those grief states that it felt different. So the loss of a baby Mm. compared to the loss of a son Mm. compared to the loss of a daughter. Mm. Yes, they were different. Um, And with each one, I was a little bit more seasoned, even though it was impossible. The losses were all equally impossible in their own ways. I was a little bit more seasoned to the subject of death and that this can happen because my my assumptive world had already been challenged. You know, we we need, we all have an assumptive world. We can't do our daily lives without it. And one assumption that we don't know we carry often is that uh, children don't die before their parents. So I was 25. I had to realise, well, they actually sometimes do. But then when I had Mm -hmm. subsequent losses, um, it was possible for a parent to lose more than one child and that was another assumption that I had to revisit. So with each loss, I had to revisit my assumptions and become aware of what they are and readjust myself and that's really hard work. I'd like to say that with each of the losses, the shock was not as bad. It was different. My baby Mm -hmm. son was a terrible shock. And shock is fascinating, Tony, because when we hear catastrophic news, the brain releases really powerful chemicals that within minutes have infiltrated down in our bodies to a molecular level. And that's within a few minutes. And I've watched that happen by the third the third death I had to experience. I watched that happen to my body. I watched it. You could actually feel yep. it and, yes, and know it from a I conscious knew exactly what was happening to me. And I oh. sat I sat on the couch and I said to the police who were at my door, I'm sorry, I cannot move you, I have to let yourselves in. And I knew what had happened to me. So those, those initial um, shock chemicals that happen within the first few minutes of receiving this news, it takes six weeks for the body to rid itself of that, which it perceives as a toxin. So, and that is just wow. the grief process, just those first few minutes. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. It is so- fascinating. Oh, goodness, that's so helpful to know that that happens. So when you receive that horrible, shocking information, the body reacts in a protective way, trying to protect Mm -hmm. you, but those chemicals stay in your body for six weeks. So if you think of that in real terms, your body is not functioning adequately or properly for six weeks from... The shock is yeah. trying to help your body function, and it does. You're in a bit of a daze, mm-hmm. but the shock for me was less with each loss. It was not quite as shocking by the third time. I wanted the yeah. shock because it sort of yes. it's like a, it's like a, a buffer, you know, yes. and, it, and it's helpful. And then that sort of, uh, and then the first stage of Kubler-Ross's suggestions is denial and that that operates like a shock absorber it's one of the most essential features of absorbing painful information and it's normal yeah so for for people listening who are in and around uh someone who is uh in grief 
just the knowledge that denial is a normal part of that process is surely helpful. From your perspective, Denny, did people acknowledge your denial? I don't think they're consciously aware of what they're looking at, Tony. And Yes. And for me, I'm not comparing myself to my textbook either. You know, you just Correct. you just you're just there having the experience of whatever's up for you in that day or in the hours. You know, yeah. you're just dealing with what what's in front of you, taking one step at a time. And yeah. as Kubler Ross said, it's not necessarily sequential, and you can have you can visit these spaces lots of times in a day. Okay, mm. with the loss um, of your beautiful infant son Mm. was were you aware of any of this at that time at 25 did you have any knowledge of these processes around the loss of your your baby i'd studied psychology but it was as though i hadn't it was as though i hadn't yeah that's yeah real life is different to the textbook it's unrecognizable (laughs) yeah so yeah, I was just where anybody else would have been. Just yeah, uh, you know. What was some of the bargaining that you um, did around um, that loss? Um, I don't really remember my, yeah. specifically my bargaining about Joseph, my baby son, but I yeah. can tell you that um, I discovered when I launched my book uh, a few months yeah. ago. A girlfriend had brought to the launch a bunch of flowers and when Uh the launch was finished and we were packing up, I picked up the flowers and I smelt them and they brought this feeling and I became aware that all this time that I'd been working on my book, I I think that I had an unconscious bargain. Um, I think that I had thought, Uh radio, this book is my mission. And if I if I totally unconscious this bargain, if I complete this mission, can I have my children back? <laughs> and when I oh, smelt the flowers, darling. yeah, when I smelt the flowers, they brought back the memory of all the flowers that had filled my house on the deaths of my children. And I, oh. I got such a sad feeling when I smelt those flowers that were there for celebration that night. Yes, yes. <clears throat> but it just um i realized i had a dawning it was a disappointing feeling that i had and i thought wow yeah. maybe but i had had still some there. Kind of, yeah i had some kind of unconscious bargain happening with myself my book has just got yeah. launched and my kids are still gone yeah. it's fascinating yeah. isn't it the psyche is yeah. fascinating <laughs> when isn't you it? think so Joseph um, has been gone for a long period of time, but mm-hmm. my understanding around grief is, is that even though those intense feelings lessen, the grief remains. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It like never leaves. It just gets manageable That's and right. worked through. Yes, we work towards a new kind of normal uh-huh. And uh, there was a woman named Virginia Lafond in about yes. 2002 who said that there are aspects of every stage of grieving <clears throat> that will always be with us because whether we grieve consciously or unconsciously, we never completely lose our sense of the loss. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it's always with us. Um, yeah. You know, it lessens. We have different things to do during the day. distraction is considered an acceptable coping mechanism Um, and distraction was interesting for me after the second loss after the loss of my eldest son Simon Um, compared to the third there are so many models of grieving I could bring into this this conversation (laughs) right now but um, after, after Simon died which was my second loss um I continued working and I found at work, oh. especially in those first couple of months, that I'd get into my work and then mm-hmm. suddenly I would remember that he'd died and the shock was <laughs> awful. It was just so intense. 
And then after my third loss, my daughter Ali, I continued working. Yes. And I did not leave the realisation behind. Um, perhaps it's because it was not as shocking and the denial may not have been as deep. But yeah. uh, <clears throat> I could continue on with my work together with the realisation on the side that she was gone and I would be grateful for my work. I felt very differently about my work. Yeah. So there, is, there was a fellow named Ken Doker who talked about mm-hmm. different styles of grieving, instrumental and intuitive styles of grieving. And mm-hmm. um, instrumental, sort of a lot more men grieve that way. It's uh, you do things, you get into the doing. And the yes. intuitive styles are more feeling and they often last a bit longer and often more women uh, grieve in that way. But what was interesting was that I have multiple losses and I could compare yes. Um, my styles of grieving in the different losses, and I, I assumed so that there was, was different, Denny. Mm, yes, Tony. Yes. I assumed that there yes. would be a style for a personality, but that's not how it was for yes. me. Um, so I, each loss was different, and each grief was was different. Yes, yes, and we grieve according uh, to who we are at the time. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so if, if after a, a whole life of experience, do you think the next loss for you, you will you'll have that understanding, but it still won't be mm-hmm. any less powerful, will it? No, no. And every relationship you have with each person in the world is unique. The pathways mm-hmm. of relating and relationship that you have is unique. And the grieving you do for that person will be unique. We, we grieve as we have loved, and every love you have for a person is different, isn't it? Yes. You, know, you, don't, you don't love the same way. You love different things about every person. And so yeah. you grieve uniquely. And yeah. your relationship with, with each person, you know, as I said, my dad's 92. I'd keep him yes. forever if I could. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, but it doesn't. There's an inevitability mm. about life, though, that yeah. none of us are going to escape. Yeah, that's right. And so that will involve a whole other range of, yes. you know, challenges. Um, in thinking about um, little baby Joseph, do you still um, remember the day that he died as if it was yesterday, is it still clearly present in your mind and and is is there an impact even after all of these years um, on the day of his actual death? Yes, but because I've journaled a lot and because I wrote the book, um, Mm -hmm. it's sort of like... I poured everything into that and it, yes. that sort of became a bit like a fantasy that wears out. Okay. So it loses its potency. I think that it would have over time anyway because of the processing because I was yes. conscientious about my processing. And yeah. when I look back on it now, I see it. I actually wrote Joseph's story in book size in about 2011, 2012. So that chapter mm-hmm. about him in the book is condensed down from book size and so I covered every aspect of his short life and went over and over and over it and of course I cried as I wrote it and the the first few times I read it I cried um, even when I was publishing it a couple of years ago now I can look back on it in this very moment from the space I'm in this morning I can look back on it mm-hmm. and I see the lights of post-op. I can see yes. his little body on the bed. Um, I can I can I can see myself come in rush in the door to his bedside yes. or I can stand at the end of the bed as though I'm one of the staff members with my arms folded watching the whole thing and watch me, the mother, yes. run in the door. Yes. And I can feel yes. compassion for her. So um I, I feel that I have processed it. It's not to say yes. that I 
feel the sadness because I do, in moments I do. Um, you know, when I go to the cemetery and I put flowers at his grave and I think, where yes. would he be now? How tall would he be? He would be about yeah. six, six yeah. feet tall. He would have... Do you dark... still talk to Jesus? Yes. Um, and Ali and Simon? I talked to Simon and Ali, but I had relationships with them. I didn't have to yes. wonder yes. who they would be, what their characters would be like, what their personalities. Because you had that. Yeah, I got to know them and I had the privilege because I lost Joseph first. I knew that it was a privilege to have had the time I did with them to have got to rear them. Yes. So um, I I felt ripped off, Tony, for all through my child-rearing years that Joseph was not amongst my children, that he was not, his head would have been similar height to Simon's bobbing around the kitchen in the afternoon after school, yes. you know, vying for afternoon yes. tea. <laughs> and, um, yes. you know, just wondering what his personality would have been like, what my – I know that he and I would have been close. Um, yes. He was – he would have been uh, gentle. He was your firstborn, so there's a what? closeness that – No, he was my secondborn. Uh, your secondborn, rather. Mm-hmm. Second, you're more comfortable as – a mother second time around firstborn is a bit um a bit of a hard work and you're not quite sure what you do but we get to second and third and you feel a bit more confident and comfortable in your mothering so i guess you, yeah i think it's unique and that again because i was, I was yeah. very close to simon my eldest and i think yes. that i went the things i have felt close to each of four all four of my children all four of my children because of what I went through with them. So yeah. Joseph's life, we fought really hard for his life and I felt close yeah. to him because of that. It's like he was very precious because we all worked so hard to help him stay to here. keep him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you think that there's a special sort of grief that mothers experience because you've carried that child within your body and they are essentially part of you? I might have said yes until fairly recently. I know that Mm -hmm. my husband expressed what a lot of fathers feel and that is that it's assumed that mothers will be on the receiving end of the condolences because of what you just stated. Yeah. Um, And I think that father's grief is overlooked, therefore. And in this generation now, we have a lot of absolutely fantastic hands-on fathering going on. And it's just beautiful to see the men digging inside themselves for their sensitivities that generations before them did not pull out of themselves. They were more a bit more removed, typically. Wait till your father gets home and all of that. And... um, now, you know, we have a stay-at-home dad in my family. I'm very yeah. proud of that. Um, and there is a lot more of that going on. Um, so I wouldn't say – I just – when I say this, I'm acknowledging the father's grief. Um, yes. As a mother. Yes, of course. As a mother, you are more, much, much more um, attached because you've started yes. to form that relationship with them in utero, in your own body. And then yeah, you have the hormones right. of giving birth. And if you breastfeed, there's another mm-hmm. relationship that you're privileged to have. Um, yeah. There's a, the, you know, the, the term aching arms is known about when you lose a baby. Yes. <clears throat> and that's, that's a real thing. That, that's that's yes. awful, awful to experience, and you know when you lose a baby that you breastfed, you are still yes. you still have milk for ages afterwards, yes. and no baby, and a baby nearby crying might set your milk off, you know. Yeah. So that is really torturous, you know. Oh, I'm just trying I, to. Be, I can't imagine. So I'm just trying to be fair and acknowledge the loss that fathers have too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wanted to touch on um, children and grief because when Joseph died, Simon was still around to experience that grief, even Mm. though he was young. Mm. What 
What were some of the things that, that Simon went through at that age? Because he loved his baby brother. He did, Tony. He did. And I, I just, I, I was in awe of how much he loved Joseph. And he was only, you know, by the time Joseph died, Simon was 20 months old. And I didn't know how yeah. a child so little could have so much love and could know to love this little baby. But he did. It was innate yeah. in him. Yes, he would look at him with these big brown eyes shining with absolute adoration. And after Joseph died, uh, Simon was in the habit of coming in to me in the mornings. And after Joseph mm -hmm. died, he would come in and the cradle was still next to my bed for a while. And Simon would pull back the top layer and he'd say, Doo -doo. you know, like baby, baby. Talk. And then he'd pull who pull off the next bunny rug and then he pull off the next bunny rug. You know, he's looking for the baby. And he'd end up pulling up even the mattress, the cot mattress, looking for him. And it was so torturous. I just cried so much when he did that. He did that a lot, you know. Yes. Um, I wanted Do you think that helped his tiny little mind yes, I think come to groups with the loss? I think everything helps. I wanted Simon yeah. to be exposed physically. Uh, it's just something I believe in. Um, yes. If it feels right. When yes. when Joseph died, my parents had Simon with them and they brought him to the hospital yes. straight away. I, I asked the nurses to ring my parents and ask them to bring the other baby. Yes. And they brought him to the hospital and I was holding Joseph. Dad came in holding Simon in his arms and I said to Simon Joseph's died sweetie Joseph's died see and I held him up and I up to Simon and I kissed Joseph's forehead to show Simon what the word meant that I just used he's not yes. moving he's not moving and it's okay but he's not moving and I said he's not going to come home with us now and we need to say goodbye and uh I held him up to Simon and Simon kissed him on the forehead. <coughs> he still didn't, you know, it takes a lot. <coughs> it takes a lot for us to appreciate what it really means to lose somebody. It's got yeah. to think through lots of layers of consciousness and awareness of what this actually means. It takes a lot of processing. Yeah. Uh, a few days later, the day before the funeral, a few days later, and my husband brought Simon down to the funeral, funeral directors so the four of us could be together one last time. And we said our goodbyes and put the lid on the little coffin. Mm. And then when we went home, I, uh, I was giving Simon a bath. I, I put him in the bath to run the bath. And while the water was running, Simon stood in the corner and hid his face and put his hands up to his face and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And it was, I said to my mum, can you hear that? It's like he knows. It's like he knows exactly. <laughs> he, was a, he was an amazing person, Simon. I don't know if that's typical. I don't know. But that's what happened with us. So, oh, uh, precious little man. And when Simon was a teenager, he became a rapper. Yes. He yes. Wrote rap songs he had an incredible sense of rhythm he was a fantastic drummer he made up mm -hmm. really tribal sounding rhythms on the drums and mm -hmm. he wrote rap songs and he wrote one to joseph so oh. it was with him and it was like because yeah. of how the the loss of a baby is a disenfranchised loss in our society it certainly was in yes. our time um yes. we had to s scrape for room in ourselves to hold this, acknowledge this loss that we'd had. Yeah. <clears throat> so Simon, mm -hmm. like me, would have kept it inside and mm -hmm. wondered what it would be like to have his baby brother with him. <laughs> yeah, yes. expression he gave it. Mm. Oh, wow. So with children, grief is an entirely different and a complex subject just on its own. Um, yes. I, mm. We were given some very good advice at the hospital. That, that I was just going to say, 
What advice did they give you when um, Joseph passed on how to manage that with Simon at such a young age? They said just just let him know, uh, just be brief and let him know at the level that he's capable of. Don't mm-hmm. use, don't don't try to change it. Don't lie. Just uh, make it as simple as you can. Make it something mm-hmm. that you can elaborate on as he gets older. And mm-hmm. so that was what we did. When he was nearly two, all I could say was, Joseph's died, he won't be coming home with us. Give him a kiss, show Simon it's still okay. And yeah. it's still okay for me to be holding him and loving him. Um, but he's not yes. coming home. And, and to show him his body not moving. And then yeah. as he grew... Um, he would always come to the cemetery with me. He knew Joseph's grave. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, That was my next question, Denny. Were there family stories about Joseph that kept the memory of him alive in the family? There are, but there. Mm-hmm. it was a difficult life he had. We did have him home yes. for a few weeks, uh, but he started to get sick again and it's so gut-wrenching that we lost him that yeah. it was hard to I mean inside myself I keep the memories alive but it was still Tony it was sort of my loss you know with yes, Simon yes. and Ali yes. there, there are most definitely stories that continue and yes. uh, that we re-enjoy I was yes. driving my dad along a road two days ago and he said I was taking Ali for a driving lesson along this road one time and I remember there was a hailstorm and instead of slowing down, Ali put her foot on the accelerator (laughs) and she she was trying to beat the hail and she couldn't hear Dad saying, slow down, slow down. (laughs) So we're at the stage where we can really enjoy those funny stories about them. To begin with, in your grieving, really it's hard to remember the the good times it seems for the first and that's pretty normal yes, Jenny, is, very, is it normal very, to, to i've read widely pain. that that there's distress around not being able to remember their laugh or their voice mm. and that um there's periods of time where you can't remember their face for example mm. but but it comes and goes just like the grieving process is is that a correct yeah, that's fair, Tony. That is fair. Yeah. I attended yeah. <coughs> a bereaved parent support group for eight years, four years after Simon's yes. death, four years after Ali's. And mm-hmm. so I got to be a great observer of what's typical for parental bereavement. Yes. And yeah, that is typical. You do this, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's traumatizing, you know, to lose a child. Oh, absolutely. However they died, it's just a really difficult thing to come to terms with. And, yeah, yeah you do fear forgetting them. You you feel yeah. as the months pass that they're being pulled away from you time-wise yeah. and there's no more yeah. of them. That's, those precious memories are coming from. You won't be adding to them. You won't be getting any more of those. Yes. But there's another model of grieving after Kubler-Ross. There's a lot of models. Yes. But that came yes. to light at the beginning of this century, so we're into the ooze now, is called continuing yeah. bonds. And yes. um, that's, I to me, that's the most helpful one I know of. Um, mm-hmm. So for for a lot of the last century, we believed that the idea of grieving was us for us to cut ties and let go. <clears throat> yeah. So that you know, we could reinvest our energy in the present, but by the time mm-hmm. this continuing bonds model came up, um, they saw that the healthy processing of our grief enabled us to continue our bond with our deceased loved one. So just inside ourselves. And that means talking about them and telling stories about them, doesn't it? Yes, and keeping them alive and creating room for them in your world. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've done with my book. I realised. Yes. I realised when it was in the publishing pipeline what I had done and I realised that I had created a place in the world uh, through my book for all four mm-hmm. of my children and, and I to be a family together. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm. And their energy and essence still surround you. Listeners, um, Denny and I are, are good friends and I know that there's been moments when we've been in conversation and talking about one of the kids, um, Ali in particular, and there's a cheek <laughs> essence that I can feel um, and, and I know from talking to Denny that she can feel it. It's a very, it, it's a, a, a presence, an essence. It's, and I don't know Ellie, I never met Ellie, but um, I, I have commented to Denny, there's a cheeky, cheeky essence or energy on your uh, right shoulder at the moment. Oh. And she goes, oh, that's just Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think that right. that's a positive thing. Yeah, she was incredibly intelligent. She had a brilliant wit that came with it, but it was very, very naughty, Tony. Uh, yes, I didn't find out that's the until essence. after Ali died from her friends that Ali used to tell dead baby jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so at least she had the respect to not tell them to me. <laughs> yeah, she, she wouldn't have got very I, far mm. with that, but I think it's hilarious. But again, that's that's the way that she would have coped, coped. with the knowledge that um, Joseph had passed. Yes, exactly. Because and she I, would have heard the stories. Yes, and I think black humour is a very acceptable way to express yeah. something that's too difficult to put into words. It's just too big, you know. And I think enough, you earn the right to have. Me too. If you've got someone that's passed that's close to you, I think you earn that right for black humour. I do too. I think that's okay. I do too. We certainly have it. Ashley and I have it. Ash and I were in the car yeah. one time driving along. We had to pull up at the lights and we pulled up behind this car that had one of those stickers that says, My Family. And it had, yes. it had a mother and a father and, you know, two children and a dog or something. And Ash mm -hmm. said... We should have one of those. And I said, yeah, you, me, a cat and a rabbit. And Ash says, no, you, me and three headstones. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I but, just laughed. But you get to laugh about that <laughs> oh, because so of what you've been through. You know, yes. you get to, he gets to have that black humour and that's okay. It's funny. It's so funny. Yes. You've got to know him. I've just got a vision of those stick figures on the back of your car now that I can't get out of my head. <laughs> it's just Ashley's humour is very dry and he makes me yes. laugh. He's yes. Just, he's, I used to tell my mum when he was little that I had him for entertainment's sake. <laughs> he makes me laugh. He's certainly been a blessing, hasn't he, Denny? He still is. He's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And he still lives at home, which is doubly awesome mm, i'm very lucky aren't i so you are yeah i want to say about grief that it was yes. really important for me to just allow all my grief spaces it's hard because some of them are regarded as politically incorrect in our society it's hard yes. for us to find places for example for anger and yet that's yes. one of the important phases that Kubler-Ross suggested and it can be really hard especially mm. uh, grieving for a baby can be very complicated because they're too small yeah. to express yeah. tougher emotions out inside yourself because they're defenseless you know and how yeah. do you get in touch with that and even find out if it's there for you or if you need to do it but she I said I bet you that, were angry though I couldn't feel it I couldn't access uh. it and it doesn't mean that it was there for me to feel. Yeah. I don't know, but I say grieving can take a lifetime. Yes. And, and Kubler-Ross says that our grief keeps changing, just like we do. So we need to keep revisiting conclusions we've come to and update on, where, on who we've become and where we're at with things now. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes yeah. we cast aside a chunk because it's too hard to deal with at the time. Yeah. And you have to revisit it. Yes, I think it's healthy. If you, yeah. don't, if you want to be integrated, I think it's very healthy, essential in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, my lovely friend, we have come to the end of my last show and I'm really appreciative that you were able to come and share with me vulnerably and from a place of experience around grief, grieving and the processes of grief. Again, I think it's an important conversation that we have and I blessed to have created a safe place where we can talk about these tough subjects. I'm more grateful than ever to have met you, to be able to share your story, to be thought of as a friend and confident. And for those of you listening today, um, please jump on to Danny's website, check out her book. I've popped her website up in the chat box. I've popped her email up in the chat box and the YouTube uh, channel as well. And it's an amazing book. It's so well written, so beautifully written, and it contains excerpts from uh, Denny's own journals, which are very precious indeed and provide wonderful insights for anyone who's grappling with any of these difficult concepts. An amazing book for anyone who wants some help through a difficult time. Denny Meek, thank you for coming on Radio Tony again. Listeners, um, Thank you so much for your love, support and messages over the t- last two years. Again, I'm not going anywhere. Radio Tony will still go on just in uh, a different format and in different spaces. If you want to know where to reach, you can reach out to me on RadioTony.com. Otherwise, have amazing lives. Reach for the stars and remember there's always someone out there to listen to you. There's always someone someone out there to help you through the tough times danny meek thank you so much it's over to you um for my final show and i'm going to not be upset but thank you so much everyone i really appreciate all my guests all my listeners and especially the beautiful rebel who's managed my sorrows that's it for now bye from me radio tony your safe space for tough conversations Exposing secrets and talking about trauma and recovery. Radio Tony, a platform for the unheard. Radio Tony. With Tony Lontis, author of Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl discovering a woman of strength and beauty. Radio 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 Tony. Available now on Amazon.com and in all good bookstores. Radio Tony. Back next Thursday from 7pm Eastern Standard Time, live from the Gold Coast, Australia. Mom!